dementia researcher with a blog and a rating. What the ethics? Negotiating ethics submissions in dementia research. Submitting an ethics application is a daunting process. There are so many things to consider and this is multiplied when working with a participant population which may be vulnerable. So what do you need to consider when applying for ethical approval for your research? I'm going to talk you through some points you need to consider. Having just submitted my own ethics application for focus groups and an online survey, I feel I can now save you some time and talk about the sources I have found helpful and what needs to be included for you to hopefully get the green light to carry out your research. I first need to specify that the advice here will be for carrying out research with people living with dementia who have the capacity to consent. If you are planning research with people who may be unable to give written or verbal consent or will be going through NHS ethics, I will provide some signposting to research and support, but I will not be able to advise much further, sadly. This blog will also be most relevant to those conducting qualitative research. I will begin with what you need to consider generally before going on to considerations that need to be made specifically for research with people living with dementia. So what do you need to do before you even begin? So you need to find out when the ethics board for your organisation or university meets. So this may be monthly or less often, so you will need to plan for the deadline. You also need to find out if there are templates for forms such as the participant information sheet, risk uh, risk assessments, etc. So this will save you lots of time and prevent needless mistakes. You also need to find out where the ethics submission needs to be sent. So is there a specific person you need to email or an online portal for doing this? And if you have questions about the ethics submission, there will likely be a person who you can contact with questions about the submission process and they can be really useful. Also speak with your supervisors or colleagues about the plans for the research you are submitting and ask them questions if you are not sure. This will save you time if you do not want your ethics submission rejected over a small error that could have been amended by asking someone. And you also need to find out what the procedure is for if your ethics submission is not approved the first time. So if it requires any amendments, how long will it take the board to re-evaluate your ethics submission? So this may set you back or maybe a quick turnaround, so it's worth finding out so you can factor this into your plans. So now that you've found out all the admin details you will need, it's time to fill out many, many forms. And it's worth considering that if you're applying for ethics for multiple elements, for example, for an online survey and focus group, many of the forms will have to be submitted for each part of the proposed research. For example, you would need to submit a risk assessment for the online survey and a risk assessment for the focus group. So the main forms that you can expect to submit are a participant information sheet, an informed consent form, a risk assessment, and in the case of conducting surveys, interviews or focus groups, you will need to submit sample questions or topic guides and include enough detail so that the ethics board gets an idea of what you plan to do and shows that you have thought through what you would do in practice. It is likely you will also need to submit a document with further details of the research, for example, the aims and objectives, a non-specialist summary of the study background, study method and methodology, your own experience in using these methods or working with this participant group, and risks for participants. I will now talk through the details you you will likely need to include for each form or document. Templates will likely be available, which you can adapt to your own research, which makes the process quicker. 
You will, however, need to think about any additional points that you would want to include from these generic forms. So for the participant information sheet, you'll need to cover investigator details, so your name, email address, work address and work contact telephone number if applicable, so not your personal mobile or home phone number, and the same details for the responsible investigator if this is applicable and is usually your main supervisor. You also need to include the purpose of your research, so why are you doing the research, who is doing the research and why, so detail the research as part of your project, your PhD research. You should also include any exclusion criteria and inclusion criteria, what participants will be asked to do, whether participants will need to attend sessions and where these will be located, how long participation will take, any disadvantages or risks of participating, and any, any uh, possible benefits of participating, anything participants might need to bring with them to in-person sessions, and information on data protection, rights to withdraw, confidentiality, how data will be used, and what to do if participants are unhappy with how the research was conducted. For the informed consent form, this also usually follows a template, and you may want to add optional or additional elements, such as that you can use quotes anonymously in the research outputs, or that you can use the data collected in future research pro projects which may be unrelated to the aims of the current study. For risk assessments, it's also likely that your organisation will offer a template, which may differ to the one used by mine at Loughborough University, but it's likely that you'll need to think of all the activities that your research will involve. The activities associated risks, who might be harmed, measures to control the risk, and then rate the likelihood and severity of the risk to calculate a risk rating. Some examples of things you need to consider for the risk assessment are activities such as in-person observations, hazards such as fire, and who might be harmed as would be anybody within the vicinity. Another example could be the activity of gathering informed consent with the hazard of loss of reputation if not com properly completed, and who might be harmed, the organisation, university, and could lead to damage to integrity and complaints and disciplinary action. Something we also need to consider in recent times is the COVID-19 pandemic, which brings the hazard of risk of contracting or transmitting coronavirus by not washing hands adequately. So we can help, help to combat this by ensuring water, soap and drying facilities are available at premises, that researchers are trained on how to wash hands properly, that hand sanitizer is used when it's not possible to wash hands, and also that we have had a lateral flow test. For sample questions or topic guides, this is also important to plan. So for this, you'll need to think about what demographic information you'll need to collect. So for example, age, gender, identity, race, occupation. There may be also be some de demographic information specific to dementia which you need to collect. For example, asking if the participant knows anyone living with dementia, is or has been a carer for someone with dementia or whether they are diagnosed with dementia th themselves. So you need to think about how personal these questions are. And a top tip is to make it so all questions are mandatory, but provide participants with a prefer not to answer option. This way you will know that they didn't want to answer, not that they just missed the question accidentally. Also for online surveys, you want to reduce dropout of participants partway through the survey as much as possible. 
So techniques for doing this include limiting free response boxes and replacing them with Likert scale questions with an optional follow-up for participants to explain their answer. For example, to what extent do you agree with the statement X, Y, Z? Strongly agree, agree, disagree, strongly disagree, and then please explain your choice, optional. It is also important to only ask questions on things you absolutely need to know as part of the research aims, so participants are not overloaded with surveys which are unnecessarily long. Try to make the survey visually clear and easy to follow, but this part can come after the ethics submission. For the ethics submission, it is only needed that you give the committee enough idea of what you will be doing, and tweaks can be made afterwards. It's also important to show that you have incorporated signposting into the survey design, for example, a link to support groups, organisations and charities. For focus groups, it is important to include a topic guide, so questions and prompts around the topics you plan to discuss. You'll also need to include information about how you will introduce the focus group to the participants, for example, housekeeping information about fire alarm procedures, rules such as listen to others and don't speak over each other, and repeat how long the focus group is expected to take, and remind participants you're interested in their opinions and beliefs, and give them a recap of their ethical rights, their rights to withdraw, confidentiality, their right to refuse to answer or leave the room at any time. Gain permission from them to record and detail when you will take breaks. Remember that signposting will also be needed at the end of the focus group and this can be achieved in a follow-up email to participants so that online links are easier for them to access than if a paper copy were given. So you may also be required to submit a document detailing more information about your planned research. So in this document, you may want to include rationale for the research, so the aims and objectives, a lay or non-specialist summary of the study background, the study method, so a description of the study and the methodology, information on participant details, participant selection and recruitment, and how data will be stored, and participant safety, so what will you do with vulnerable participants and how will you protect them, and your own investigator experience, so your prior experience with the research methods and the population, for example. The advice I have described so far has been general, but I would now like to consider what extra things we may need to take into account when conducting research with people living with dementia. Some of the points I will describe are related to in-person research, interviews or focus groups. So the first one is fatigue to participants. So how much are you asking participants to do? Are you scheduling in enough breaks? Do you need to ask all the questions or will fewer do? Will you provide refreshments? And are you reminding participants they can leave the room whenever they like? You also need to consider anything you could offer participants which may be useful to them. So in the case of my research, I plan to run a blog writing workshop for participants of the focus group and provide a platform for them to publish on as a way of thanking them for their participation. So consider what may be useful for participants in your research. Also consider whether you are exposing participants to harm through your research. So will you be discussing potentially upsetting topics? If so, you will need to show you have thought about how you can help participants access any help they may need by directing them to relevant charities and organisations, such as Alzheimer's Society or Carers UK. You will also need to let participants know they can decline to answer any question and can leave the room at any time. For interview or focus group research, or indeed any research which is quite involved, it is a good idea to hold an initial meeting so that participants living with dementia can get to know one another, the researcher, and ask any questions. 
This situation also allows the researcher to assess whether the participant looks comfortable in participating and they can be asked if anything is worrying them or if they would like to withdraw. So dementia and informed consent is a large area of concern. But as long as you are aware of relevant legislation and have checks in place, you will be fine. So legislation that you need to be aware of is the Mental Capacity Act, which is good to read up on. In terms of consent, I have found the process model of consent useful. So this involves monitoring and reviewing consent throughout the duration of the research project. So asking family members or informal carers if this is something the participant living with dementia is likely to want to participate in, as well as asking for consent from the participant living with dementia and looking out for signs of them no longer longer wanting to be part of the research. And these signs could be non-verbal and behavioural cues as well as verbal language. In terms of my own research, I am only allowing participants to self-select to take part. So this is so that individuals can elect to take part and they'll be recruited from the online survey and through other means if necessary, such as the deep network and social media. This does, however, exclude people with more advanced dementia who may be less able to communicate. So in conclusion, I'd like to offer some take-home points and useful links. So it is very important to find out all the relevant information and templates before, get, before beginning your ethics submission, especially dates for when the committee meets to discuss submissions. Make sure you include enough detail so that the committee gets a real idea of how your research would work. Also consider how people living with dementia will need to be supported and what you can offer them as well as what they can offer you. And consider how you will combat possible upset caused to your participants from participating and read up on ethics and relevant literature in the field. For example, papers on ethics and dementia journals, such as maximizing inclusion, safe research practices for qualitative research with people living with dementia, and papers on inclusive research, such as participatory research with people with late stage dementia, inclusive research with people living with dementia, photo voice and dementia, and involving people living with dementia in conversation analysis of doctor-patient care interactions. And also, if this applies to you, information for NHS ethics guidance. And links to all of these can be found at the bottom of the blog. Thank you for listening. Join the Dementia Research bloggers and share your own views.